You can go ahead and have a seat right now. <clears throat> um, my name is Norton. I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver. And uh, if you're new to our church or just started coming this summer, um, then I probably haven't met you yet because I was gone on sabbatical. And uh, it was great. It's good to be back. I've come back feeling um, rested and refreshed and rejuvenated and excited uh, about a new season of ministry and, and just thankful for the opportunity to go away. Um, and do that. Um, Emily, one of our other pastors, was gone this summer as well on sabbatical, and um, we're just so thankful, uh, thankful especially to our staff. Um, I know some of you on staff uh, took on extra weight and responsibility and tasks um, this summer, and so uh, super grateful for that, and um, honestly come back and feel like things are in better shape than than before I left. And so uh, that's personally humbling, right? You guys do better without me. Uh, but, um, but that's also a sign of a really healthy community. And that's, um, that's great. So, uh, hey, today we're going to kick off a brand new series. Um, and the name of the series is People of the Book. And it's about the Bible. Um, so I grew up going to church. I know some of you did as well. And as long as I can remember, uh, this was called the Word of God. That's what I was taught as a kid, uh, that God wrote this book. He wrote it um, to you and to me so that we would know what to believe and how to live our lives. And I just, I always believed that as a kid growing up. Now, I didn't always live by this book, uh, but I never questioned that this was the word of God until college. Uh, Because when I got to college, I went to this large secular university, and when I got to college, I decided to take a couple of classes in the religion department there about the Bible. And when you read and study the Bible in an academic secular university setting, it's very different than reading and studying the Bible in church or in Sunday school. Uh, For starters, uh, nobody called it the Word of God there. Um, we didn't start class. Nobody opened in prayer. You know, we didn't take up a collection or anything like that. Uh, we wouldn't read a passage together and then talk about how it applied to our lives. No, we had a very different perspective. We actually read this book as if it was like any other work of literature, which meant we read it as if people wrote this book, not God, as if what they wrote might not actually be true. As if what they wrote, they wrote with an agenda. As if maybe this book is a whole lot more like Greek mythology than sacred scripture. And that raised all kinds of new questions and doubts and issues connected to my faith. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you grew up in the church and sort of embraced or adopted a very simple and earnest and helpful viewpoint that the Bible was the word of God when you were young, but then you got to college or maybe you got into the real world or you got into your 20s or into your 30s and suddenly this book didn't make as much sense anymore. Suddenly there were things in this book that that didn't add up, didn't even fit your faith anymore or raise significant questions or made you wonder if you were even believing in the right things. Or maybe you find yourself in a different scenario right now. Um, Perhaps you've noticed over the last couple of years that there's other people that read this book and they read it a whole lot differently than you do. 
And they call themselves Christians, and by all marks, they're Christians, and you're a Christian, and you're reading the same book, and yet you come to very different conclusions about what it means. And you look at what they say or what they do or their lives, and it feels like uh, they're full of a lot of hatred or maybe a lot of greed or maybe it's bigotry or maybe they just have a very different view of God or a different view of the world. And you're scratching your head thinking, are they reading the same book as I'm reading? And sure enough, they are because they talk about this book all the time. They have all kinds of verses to support what they believe and how they live. And, and, and it just seems so odd to you. In fact, it's perplexing. It's, it's, it's tough that two people can read the same book and, and come away with such different perspectives. And, and the question that this really raises, it's a really simple question that I want us to ask, and it's this. Can I trust the Bible? Can I trust that it's good? Can I trust that what it says is true? Can I trust that the wisdom or the hope that it offers is for me and my life or for this world? And in our most honest moments, I think a lot of us would say, I'm not always so sure I can trust it. I've got some questions about it. I've got some new doubts about this book. I've got some significant problems. I'm not sure I can always trust it. And as we've been talking over the last couple of weeks, Stephen has been leading us through this series where we've talked about deconstructing and reconstructing our faith. And he's reminded us over and over that doubts and questions are not bad. They can actually be really healthy. They're not something that we should hide. They're not something that we should be ashamed of. In fact, I'd be a little bit suspicious if you had no doubts or questions or problems with this book. I have all sorts of problems with some of the things in this book. And so the issue is, what do we do with those doubts and those questions? How can we acknowledge them? How can we be honest about them? How can we just bring them to the table and talk about them openly and not hide them? How can we work through them together as a community of faith? Now, when it comes to the Bible, I think there's actually two ways we can work through the doubts and the questions and the problems we have. Number one is we have to talk about the hard parts. Because right there are some hard parts to this book. And we have to do that. And at New Denver, we just try to regularly and openly do that, even on Sundays. We did a series a couple years ago called FAQ, where we looked at and read a whole bunch of the violent passages of the Old Testament and tried to make sense of them. And then we read some of the passages and teachings in the New Testament where Jesus talked about hell. We tried to make sense of that and try to figure out what did that mean? Last year, we did a 13-week series on the book of Leviticus. Right? Could there be any more difficult or challenging or hard or hard-to-understand book in the Bible. So we just think it's important to regularly talk about and be honest about those difficult parts of the Bible. But here's the second thing that we need to do. Number two, we need to know where the Bible came from. Because you can't trust something if you don't understand where it came from, if you don't know where it came from, if you're suspicious about where it came from. Uh, a lot of people are hesitant right now to get the COVID vaccine. 
because they're suspicious about where it came from. They're not sure if they trust the FDA approval process. They're not sure if they trust the government, right? They're not sure if they trust the big pharmaceutical companies that have produced this thing and are saying, you need to take it. Um, I, uh, when the COVID vaccine came out, I was like first in line and I showed up and I was like, can you just give me like four or five of those shots? Like, I'll take as many as you can give me because I grew up and my background was science and my dad was a doctor. And so I sort of grew up in the medical community where things like this helped save people's lives. And I read the journal articles and I, I understood the process of the trials that it went through that were significant and the approval and all that. And so it was just kind of a no brainer for me because I trusted where it was coming from. But I have empathy towards those who say, I'm just suspicious about where it came from and that's why I'm hesitant to accept this thing. Because we're all that way, right? When somebody shows up at my door trying to sell me something, I, I don't want to hear anything of it. Like Janice will sit there and talk to them for hours and they can't even get the first sentence out and I'm like, Choo, slam the door. Because I don't know you. I don't know what you have to offer me. I'm suspicious about your motives. I think you're just trying to make money. I don't think what you're trying to give me is going to make my life any better. I just don't trust where this is coming from. And so I don't trust what you're giving me. And it's the same way with the Bible. If we don't know or understand where it came from, if we show up in a university class setting and suddenly we're told, hey, you know, we don't actually have the original documents of the Bible. And you know, actually, Paul didn't write all of those letters. And there are a whole bunch of other stories and books about Jesus, and those were excluded. A bunch of men decided that they shouldn't include those in the Bible. And suddenly, I've got significant questions. Where did this book actually come from? Can I trust this book? And if I can't trust where it come, came from, then I'm not going to trust the book. And so here's what we're going to do. Over the next four weeks, we're going to explore this specific question. Where did this book come from? And we're going to ask four very specific questions. So today, we're going to ask who wrote the Bible. Uh, next week, we're going to come back and ask who compiled the Bible, because it's a bunch of books that were compiled and put together. So who decided which books make it, made it in, and how did they make that decision? Who preserved the Bible? This is really important. How do we know that the earliest copies of the biblical documents weren't manipulated along the way or embellished along the way? And then who translated the Bible? It wasn't written in English. What we read are translations. How do we know that we have good translations? And which one is the best translation? How do you choose between all the different ones? You see, if we're going to be people of the book, and we need to know a little bit more about the people behind the book. And it's not enough to say, well, God wrote the book, right? God wrote it, I believe it, and that just settles it. No, that's, that's a really bad answer, right? People wrote this book. Actual flesh and blood people wrote it and preserved it and compiled it and put it together and translated it. And even if at some level I believe that there's a God and he inspired people to write it. And he can still speak to me somehow through this book. I need better answers than that if I'm going to read it and trust it and believe what it says. So let's just jump into the very first question today. Who wrote 
the Bible? Who are the actual humans, the actual people that wrote it? And today I'm just going to give you three very general summary answers because there's 66 different books that make up the Bible. So we can't go through every single one and talk about every single one. We just don't have time for that. So I'm going to give you three big picture answers. And then I want to wrap up and conclude with two takeaways that are really important for helping us trust at some level what was written in this book. So who wrote the Bible, or more accurately, who wrote the books that originally were collected and became known as what we now call the Bible? Three answers. Number one, for some books, we know a lot about the author. We know a lot about the author. So in the New Testament, there's a number of letters written uh, and self-identified as written by a guy named Paul to someone else. And uh, there's one letter called Philemon. We call it Philemon. And here's how that letter begins. It says this. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a very traditional greeting that shows up at the beginning of a letter that was written sometime in the first century in the Roman Empire, and it follows all of the standard conventions of how letters were written during that time. Paul goes on in this letter. You can go home and read the rest yourself. And he shares um, and communicates some very specific things to his friend Philemon and to the house church. Churches weren't big like this at that time. They just met in small houses. To the church that meets in Philemon's house. And then he wraps up the letter by by saying, hey, I'm going to come visit you sometime soon. Can you prepare a room for me? And all the friends that are here with me greet you and all the friends that are here with you. It's just this very personal letter. And biblical scholars from across the spectrum, Christian scholars and non-Christian scholars, uh, conservative scholars and liberal scholars, and everybody in between all agree that there was this guy named Paul who wrote this letter. And we know a lot about Paul. Paul was an early Jewish leader. And then he became a follower of Jesus. And then he traveled all around the Mediterranean to a lot of specific cities. And he helped start churches in those places. And that this is a genuine, authentic letter from Paul and from his friend Timothy that is written specifically to Philemon and some other people. Now, there are several other letters in the New Testament That are like that. Letters where it's clear who the author is, and we know a fair amount about that author. There are also other books, like the book of Luke and Acts, that were written by this guy named Luke. Uh, Luke, we know something about him. He was a friend of Paul's. He went on some of the journeys with Paul when he traveled around the Mediterranean. Um, Luke was a doctor. Uh, So he was very intelligent and smart and precise in the way he thought about things. Uh, Luke was not Jewish. He came from a Gentile background, and he was not one of the original 12 disciples. But he decided to write a book that became a biography of Jesus' life. And here's how he starts his first book. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything 
you are taught. So Luke steps into the role of a journalist or a historian here, and he basically says, he's writing to his friend Theophilus, who he dedicates the book to. He basically says, hey, there's um, already been written uh, a couple of accounts about Jesus' life, and they're well-documented, and they rely on very credible sources to tell us about Jesus. Um, and, and just a quick parenthesis here, he's probably talking about Matthew and Mark, We know from a lot of evidence that I can't go into now that Matthew and Mark were probably the first books written about Jesus' life. So he's referring to those saying, hey, I know you already have a couple of accounts about who Jesus was and what he did, but I decided to write my own account. I decided to do my own investigation and talk to people and talk to sources and collect all the the stories and the histories down and write this story about who Jesus was. And that book becomes what we now call the book of Luke or the gospel or the good news according to Luke. And then Luke decides to write a second book. And here's how his second book starts. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven. And then Luke goes on and he picks up the story from there. And this is like the sequel This is volume two of the story. He's going to describe how the Jesus movement grew after Jesus left. And he describes all the different activities and actions or acts of the early apostles. And so we call that book the Acts of the Apostles or just Acts for short. As a kid, I thought it was like AX and that was cool, but it's not that. It's just Acts, right? Um, so that's, that's what Luke writes. And so to answer this question, who wrote the Bible, with regard to some of the books of the Bible, we know who the authors were. We have a lot of evidence as to who they were and what they were like and the books they wrote and the agendas that they had when they wrote their books. And that question of agenda is actually really important And so uh, we would get on a rabbit trail if we started talking about that too much. So I want to come back and talk about that um, in another message. And so this week I'm going to record a podcast. We did this during the Leviticus series. There's so much we could talk about with respect to this issue. And so each week um, there's some things that we're just not going to have time to get into. And so I'm just going to go a little bit deeper, uh, record another message this week. We'll upload it to our podcast probably on Wednesday so you can listen to that. And I want to speak specifically to what was the agendas of these people who wrote these various books because they had agendas so what were they so we'll we'll get to that um, in the podcast but for now we simply know that we know some of the authors of the books that made it into the bible but here's a second answer to that question who wrote the bible number two other books are associated with authors but they may have been written by someone else so let me explain this one It looks like a few of the letters that are traditionally attributed to Paul were actually written by a secretary or an associate, like a co-worker of his. Now, it's possible Paul actually dictated the letter. He said, write this down. I'll tell you what to write. Write it down. It's also likely that Paul asked a friend or a secretary to write a letter on his behalf. Hey, we need to address these questions or these issues to our friends. Can you write a letter? Somebody else wrote the letter. They maybe put it in front of Paul's eyes before it was sent away. Paul read it and was like, yep, that sounds good. I like it. And it was sent with Paul's 
authority. But it didn't originally originate or it wasn't literally written down by Paul himself. And what's interesting is we see this happen all the time even in our own modern world. It's a bit like when you hear on the news, uh, the president released a new policy statement on the economy today. Did the president write that policy statement? Almost certainly not, right? Someone else in the administration wrote that policy statement. But um, did the president release that policy statement? Almost certainly not. It was a press secretary who stood up and said, we have a new policy statement. So someone else wrote it. Someone else actually released it and first read it to the world. But it carries the authority of the president as if it was written by him himself. And we think some of the letters in the New Testament are that way. Probably a few of the letters attributed to Paul When you actually dig deep into them, and scholars do this all the time, you can see there's some different phrasing or different words or vocabulary or even a slightly different writing style in some of the letters. Well, it makes sense if it was a secretary or somebody else that wrote that letter. Uh, The letters called 1 and 2 Peter are traditionally uh, attributed or associated with the Apostle Peter, but we think it's possible somebody else actually wrote those. Now, There's a bunch of books in the Old Testament that follow a very similar principle. Let me give you an example. The book of Jeremiah is a collection of Jeremiah's prophetic messages and stories. It's the longest book in the entire Bible and sort of tells the story of his life and his messages. But if you ever have read through the book or made it through, you've gotten to a part where you realize it actually says in the book that it was his friend, a scribe named Baruch, that wrote everything down. It wasn't Jeremiah that wrote it down. It was a guy named Baruch that wrote it all down. And Baruch probably took all the stories of Jeremiah's life and all the sermons and the messages he preached, and he was the one that edited them. He was the one that collected them. He was the one that put them in the order they were in. He maybe even added little transitional statements in between or little introductions or conclusions to each one to tie it all together. So it's written to give us Jeremiah's message and life but it was literally authored by somebody else, a scribe named Baruch. Other examples, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they're often attributed to or associated with Moses, right? We know who Moses is, but that doesn't mean that Moses literally wrote every part of all five of these books, You get to the book of Deuteronomy, and it describes Moses' death and what happened after that. Pretty sure Moses didn't write that part, right? Or in the early parts of Genesis, there's all sorts of stories that are there that probably existed in some oral form or some written form before Moses' time. What we do know is that the first drafts of these five books were probably written during Moses' time and under his leadership when he had led the people out of Egypt and they had gone to Mount Sinai or they were in the wilderness. They were in that very formative time of forming their identity as a nation and that's when Moses said, we need to put this history and who we are as a people into writing. And so it was probably under his leadership that it was done, but there were countless scribes, unnamed scribes, that almost certainly played a significant role in actually writing all of these documents down. It's similar with Solomon and David 
Solomon's attributed with the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. David's attributed with many of the Psalms. But there's evidence to suggest that it's somebody else who maybe wrote all of these works. So this is an important second category. Books that are associated with a well-known author, but probably written by someone else. And this is such an important nuance. Before we move on, I just I can't emphasize how important this nuance is because when I got to college and I was told, actually, Paul didn't write all those letters. Actually, Moses didn't write all of those books. I mean, it shook me. It challenged my faith because somewhere along the way, I had read a book or I had heard from a pastor or a leader or maybe even nobody even actually said it. I just put it together that I think Moses wrote these and I think Paul wrote all these and it's really clear and it's certain and it's black and white. And then suddenly I'm being told, no, actually that's not true. And there's good evidence to show that that's not true. And as I looked at that evidence, if that's not true, if the thing that I thought was so clear and certain suddenly isn't true, that raises questions about everything. Maybe all of those stories about Jesus were just made up. Maybe the weird stories in Genesis were just made up. Maybe that's why they're so weird, right? And so suddenly it just really shook my faith and it raised all kinds of new questions. And so I'm here today to say before you go down that trail, before you get caught in that downward spiral of doubts and questions, you need to know that the Bible is this beautifully complex compilation of writings. And these writings arise out of very unique and different and diverse historical circumstances and situations. And we know a lot about the authors of some of these writings Other writings are associated with someone we know a lot about, but they were probably written by someone that we don't know anything about. And then there's even a third category, and it's this. Number three, for other books, we simply don't know the author. We just don't know who wrote it. I mean, we can make guesses, but scholars just don't know. Most of the historical books in the Old Testament are this way. Um, there's a couple of books called First and Second Kings, and they tell the stories of all the kings of Israel from David's death to the time of the exile, and they read like very official documents. In fact, if you read them, they're like that. It's, you're reading, and it's like these are the official achievements and failures of every king in the life of Israel. And there's times where it even says, if you want more about this, go consult the annals of this and this, and they're official documents. And so we know that, and they're important, we just don't know which official or what group of officials were the ones who actually first wrote all of these things down. Or there's the book of Ruth, which is this really cool story. It's about this brave woman named Ruth, and we learn so much about her and about Israel. She lived in about 1100 BC, and we learn about Israel and its geography and its culture and some unique customs that existed during that time. But we don't actually know who first wrote this story or recorded it or put it down so that we could have it. And maybe a third or more of the books of the Bible mostly in the Old Testament, fall into this category. We just don't know who the original author was. Now, if we ended there today, uh, you might leave discouraged. Like, wait a second. 
You're telling me, like for huge sections of the Bible, we have no idea who even wrote it? (laughs) Yeah. But I don't think that's reason to be discouraged. In fact, I actually think that there's reasons to be encouraged. So let me wrap up by just giving you two takeaways that speak to this issue of trusting the Bible. First takeaway is this. Not having clarity of authorship actually enhances the authenticity of these writings. Did you know that ancient cultures were primarily oral? That that's just a fact, that the stories and the poems and the, the prayers and the songs and the histories that were a part of people's lives, in the ancient world, they were just passed down through oral tradition. They were rarely written down. That's because writing was difficult in the ancient world. Writing was very expensive. There's very few people that actually knew how to read and to write. And so even when things were finally written down, declaring and defining who the author was or the scribe that was writing these things down was just not that important. Now, in some cases, it was important when you're writing a personal letter from one person to another, right? It's pretty clear to say who's writing the letter like Paul's Writings, But writing down the story of Ruth, writing down the stories of Genesis, writing down and collecting the messages of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel, if you're a scribe doing that, you're just collecting and putting into writings stories that have been circulating orally for a long time. You're taking things that are already in the public domain and just setting them down into writing. So in many cases, there's just no perceived necessity for an author to clarify who he or she actually is. Now, this is true of all ancient literature. You need to know that. There are some writings in ancient literature that have clear authors. There's a guy named Tacitus, who was a Roman historian and wrote the histories of the Caesars of the Roman Empire. There's a Jewish historian that lived about the time of Jesus who wrote a history of the Jewish people during those times. We know those authors. So there's some works that have very clear authors. There's other works that are associated with an author, but were probably written by someone else, like the Iliad and the Odyssey which all of us know were associated with this guy named Homer. But the actual ancient epics, probably the most well-known ancient pieces of literature, don't say anywhere in the poems that they're written by a guy named Homer. We know almost next to nothing about who this guy named Homer was. And almost all scholars of ancient Greek literature now don't think that it was a guy named Homer that wrote those poems. They're probably penned by somebody else. So there's works that fit into that category as well. And then for a lot of works, especially in the ancient Near East, from Egyptian histories and Assyrian histories and all kinds of other peoples, there's a lot of works where we don't know anything about the author. They're just anonymous works. Now, if that's true of all of ancient literature, then it shouldn't surprise us at all when we get to the Bible writings And it's true of those as well. In fact, do you know what would be a surprise? 
Do you know what would raise all kinds of suspicions? Would be if we came to those writings and suddenly there was a preface in the beginning of all those writings saying, let me just clarify who's writing this and what time it's being written and who it's being written to. That would raise all sorts of questions and suspicions. You see, not having that kind of clarity, it actually enhances the authenticity of these writings. It doesn't diminish them. Let me offer you a second takeaway before we wrap up today. Number two, not knowing everything about the authors does not undermine the truth or relevance of their writings. Let me ask you a quick question. Uh, Does anyone know who wrote the U.S. Constitution? Anyone know who wrote it or how it was written? Probably not. I mean, maybe there's one or two people, but probably most of us could not give a good answer to that right off the top of their heads, right? You know Alexander Hamilton played a role because you've seen the play, right? Alexander Hamilton, right? Uh, You know, uh, you maybe have heard that James Madison was the author of the Constitution. What you probably don't know is that, yes, he wrote part of it down, but only after meeting with over 50 different people for four different months, and every single one of them contributed different exact sentences and verbs and ideas to this document, and he just took all of it and compiled it together and edited it and tried to write it down and put together a draft, and then that draft went back to a group of people, and they added all kinds of new revisions and all kinds of new parts to the Constitution that he did not write. And then that draft went through 27 additional uh, amendments and revisions along the way over the last 200 years. And so it's almost impossible to say that there's any one author of this this work called the U.S. Constitution. And it's almost impossible to try to decipher which actual pieces. If you try to figure out which person wrote which sentence and all that, it gets really messy and really difficult. And yet it's a document that every single one of us lives by. It's a document that the fabric of our society and our entire government is based on. You see, not knowing all of these specific questions about authorship does not in any way take away from the importance and the relevance of this document. And it's the same with the Bible. It's good for us to ask these kinds of questions about where it came from, who wrote it down, what their agendas were. But when you really get into it and you study it, the answers are not that surprising. You find out that we know some of the authors. And then there's a lot of books that are associated with people we know things about, but it was probably written by someone else. And then a lot of the authors are simply anonymous. They were regular people, like you and like me. They were people who were writing not to get famous, because they weren't going to get famous. They were writing not to get rich, because they weren't going to make any money off of it. They were writing not to make a name for themselves, because they didn't put their name in there. They were simply recording these powerful stories. Stories about their lives, stories about their faith, Stories about their struggles and stories about the God that they believed in and worshiped. And it's a record that even today we can still trust. Let me pray for us and then we'll wrap up.
<clears throat> Lord, we do thank you for this book. And as difficult as it is to read sometimes, and even though there's some hard parts, and even though sometimes there's questions that are raised that we don't have great answers for, I pray that today and through the next few weeks as we go through this study and this exploration together that you would increase our faith. Because we desire to follow and worship a God who is real, who can give meaning to our lives. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes it's really hard when things aren't going well. When the world seems like it's falling apart. And so we do need your faith. And we pray that you would show up and meet us in these questions as we ask them together. Pray this in your name.